0: Section number 14 of Emile. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Naomi Brewster, Melbourne, Australia. Emile by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Translated by Barbara Foxley. Book number 2, part 10 it is said that from early childhood the redskins of canada train their sense of smell to such a degree of subtlety that although they have dogs they do not condescend to use them in hunting they are their own dogs indeed i believe that if children were trained to scent their dinner as dogs scent game their sense of smell might be nearly as perfect but i see no very real advantage to be derived from this sense except by teaching the child to observe the relation between smell and taste. Nature has taken care to compel us to learn these relations. She has made the exercise of the latter sense practically inseparable from that of the former, by placing their organs close together and by providing, in the mouth, a direct pathway between them, so that we taste nothing without smelling it too. Only I would not have these natural relations disturbed in order to deceive the child. For example, to conceal the taste of medicine with an aromic odour. For the discord between the senses is too great for deception. The more active sense overpowers the other and medicine is just as distasteful and this disagreeable association extends to every sensation experienced at the time. So the slightest of these sensations recalls the rest to his imagination and a very pleasant perfume is for him only a nasty smell thus our foolish precautions increase the sum total of his unpleasant sensations at the cost of his pleasant sensations in the following books i have still to speak of training of the sort of sixth sense so-called common sense not so much because it is common to all men but because it results from the well-regulated use of the other five, and teaches the nature of things by the sum total of their external aspects. So this sixth sense has no special organ. It has its seat in the brain, and its sensations, which are purely internal, are called percepts or ideas. The number of these ideas is a measure of our knowledge, exactness of thought depends on their clearness and precision the art of comparing them one with another is called human reason thus what i call the reasoning of the senses or the reasoning of the child consists in the formation of simple ideas through the associated experience of several sensations what i call the reasoning of the intellect consists in the formation of complex ideas through the association of several simple ideas. If my method is indeed that of nature, and if I am not mistaken in the application of that method, we have led our pupil through the region of sensation to the bounds of the child's reasoning. The first step we take beyond these bounds must be the step of a man. But before we make this fresh advance, let us glance back for a moment at the path we have hitherto followed, Every age, every station in life has its perfection, its ripeness of its own. We have often heard the phrase a grown man, but we will consider a grown child. This will be a new experience and none the less pleasing. The life of finite creatures is so poor and narrow that the mere sight of what is arouses no emotion. It is fancy which decks reality, and if imagination does not lend its charm to that which touches our senses, our barren pleasure is confined to the senses alone, while the heart remains cold. The earth, adorned with the treasures of autumn, displays a wealth of colour which the eye admires. But this admiration fails to move us, it springs rather from thought than from feeling in spring the country is almost bare and leafless the trees give no shade the grass has hardly begun to grow yet the heart is touched by the sight in this new birth of nature we feel the revival of our own life the memories of past pleasures surround us tears of delight those companions of pleasure ever ready to accompany a pleasing sentiment tremble on our eyelids Animated, lively, and delightful, though the vintage may be, we behold it without a tear. And why is this? Because imagination adds to the sight of spring the image of the seasons which are yet to come. The eye sees the tender shoot, the mind's eye beholds its flowers, fruit, and foliage, and even the mysteries they may conceal. It blends suggestive stages into one moment's experience. We see things, not so much as they will be, but as we would have them be, for imagination has only to take her choice. In autumn, on the other hand, we only behold the present. If we wish to look forward to spring, winter bars the way, and our shivering imagination dies away among its frost and snow. This is the source of the charm we find in beholding the beauties of childhood, rather than the perfection of manhood. When do we really delight in beholding a man? When the memory of his deeds leads us to look back over his life and his youth is renewed in our eyes. If we are reduced to viewing him as he is, or to picturing him as he will be in old age, the thought of declining years destroys our pleasure. There is no pleasure in seeing a man hastening to his grave. The image of death makes all hideous. But when I think of a child of ten or twelve, strong, healthy, well-grown for his age, only pleasant thoughts are called up, whether of the present or of the future. I see him keen, eager and full of life, free from gnawing cares and painful forebodings. Absorbed in this present state and delighting in the fullness of life, which seems to extend beyond himself. I look forward to a time when he will use his daily increasing sense, intelligence and vigour, those growing powers which he continually gives fresh proof. I watch the child with delight. I picture to myself the man with even greater pleasure. His eager life seems to stir my own pulses i seem to live his life and in his vigour i renew my own the hour strikes The scene is changed all of a sudden his eye grows dim his mirth has fled farewell mirth farewell untrammelled sports in which he delighted a stern angry man takes him by the hand saying gravely come with me sir and he is led away as they are entering the room i catch a glimpse of books books what dull food for a child of his age the poor child allows himself to be dragged away he casts a sorrowful look on all about him and departs in silence his eyes swollen with the tears he dare not shed and his heart bursting with the sighs he dare not utter you who have no such cause for fear you, for whom no period of life is a time of weariness and tedium, you who welcome days without care and nights without impatience, you who only reckon time by your pleasures, come, my happy, kindly pupil, and console us for the departure of that miserable creature. Come, here he is, and at his approach I feel a thrill of delight, which I see he shares. It is his friend, his comrade, who meets him. When he sees me, he knows very well that he will not be long without amusement. We are never dependent on each other, but we are always on good terms, and we are never so happy as when together. His face, his bearing, his expression, speak of confidence and contentment. Health shines in his countenance. His firm step speaks of strength. His colour, delicate but not sickly, has nothing of softness or effeminacy. Sun and wind have already set the honourable stamp of manhood on his countenance. His rounded muscles already begin to show some signs of growing individuality. His eyes, as yet unlighted by the flame of feeling, have at least all their native calm. They have not been darkened by prolonged sorrow, nor are his cheeks furrowed by ceaseless tears. Behold in his quick and certain movements the natural vigour of his age and the confidence of independence. His manner is free and open, but without a trace of indolence or vanity. His head, which has not been bent over books, does not fall upon his breast. There is no need to say, hold your head up, he will neither hang his head for shame nor fear. Make room for him, gentlemen, in your midst. Question him boldly. Have no fear of importunity, chatter or impertinent questions. You need not be afraid that he will take possession of you and expect you to devote yourself entirely to him so that you cannot get rid of him. Neither need you look for compliments from him nor will he tell you what I have taught him to say. Expect nothing from him but the plain, simple truth, without addition or ornament and without vanity. He will tell you the wrong things he has done and thought as readily as right, without troubling himself in the least as to the effect of his words upon you. He will use speech with all the simplicity of its first beginnings. We love to augur well of our children, and we are continually regretting the flood of folly which overwhelms the hopes we would fain have rested on some chance phrase. If my scholar rarely gives me cause for such prophecies, neither will he give me cause for such regrets, for he never says a useless word, and does not exhaust himself by chattering when he knows there is no one to listen to him. His ideas are few but precise. He knows nothing by rote but much by experience. If he reads our books worse than other children, he reads far better in the book of nature. His thoughts are not on his tongue, but in his brain. He has less memory and more judgment. He can only speak one language, but he understands what he is saying, and if his speech is not so good as that of other children, his deeds are better. He does not know the meaning of habit, routine, and custom. What he did yesterday has no control over what he is doing today. He follows no rule, submits to no authority, copies no pattern, and only acts or speaks as he pleases. So, do not expect set speeches or studied manners from him but just the faithful expression of his thoughts and the conduct that springs from his inclinations footnote habit owes its charms to man's natural idleness and this idleness grows upon us if indulged it is easier to do what we have already done there is a beaten path which is easily followed thus we may observe that habit is very strong in the aged and in the indolent and very weak in the young and active. The rule of habit is only good for feeble hearts, and it makes them more and more feeble day by day. The only useful habit for children is to be accustomed to submit without difficulty to necessity, and the only useful habit for man is to submit without difficulty to the rule of reason. Every other habit is vice. End of footnote. You will find he has few moral ideas concerning his present state and none concerning manhood. What use could he make of them, for the child is not as yet an active member of society? Speak to him of freedom, of property, or even of what is usually done. He may understand you so far. He knows why his things are his own, and why other things are not his, and nothing more. Speak to him of duty or obedience. He will not know what you are talking about. Bid him do something, and he will pay no attention. But say to him, If you will give me this pleasure, I will repay it when required, and he will hasten to give you satisfaction. For he asks nothing better than to extend his domain, to acquire rights over you, which will, he knows, be respected. Maybe he is not sorry to have a place of his own, to be reckoned of some account, but if he has formed this latter idea, he has already left the realms of nature, and you have failed to bar the gates of vanity. For his own part, should he need help, he will ask for it readily of the first person he meets. He will ask it of a king as readily as of his servant. All men are equals in his eyes. From his way of asking, you will see he knows you owe him nothing, that he is asking a favour. He knows too that humanity moves you to grant this favour. His words are few and simple. His voice, his look, his gesture are those of a being equally familiar with compliance and refusal it is neither the crawling servile submission of the slave nor the imperious tone of the master it is a modest confidence in mankind it is the noble and touching gentleness of a creature free yet sensitive and feeble who asks aid of a being free but strong and kindly if you grant his request he will not thank you but he will feel he has incurred a debt if you refuse, he will neither complain nor insist. He knows it is useless. He will not say, they refused to help me, but it was impossible. And as I have already said, we do not rebel against necessity when once we have perceived it. Leave him to himself and watch his actions without speaking. Consider what he is doing and how he sits about it he does not require to convince himself that he is free so he never acts thoughtlessly and merely to show that he can do what he likes does he not know that he is always his own master he is quick alert and ready his movements are eager as befits his age but you will not find one which has no end in view whatever he wants he will never attempt what is beyond his powers for he has learnt by experience what those powers are. His means will always be adapted to the end in view, and he will rarely attempt anything without the certainty of success. His eye is keen and true. He will not be so stupid as to go and ask other people about what he sees. He will examine it on his own account. And before he asks, he will try every means at his disposal to discover what he wants to know for himself. If he lights upon some unexpected difficulty, he will be less upset than others. If there is danger, he will be less afraid. His imagination is still asleep and nothing has been done to arouse it. He only sees what is really there and rates the danger as its true worth so he never loses his head he does not rebel against necessity her hand is too heavy upon him he has borne her yoke all his life long he is well used to it he is always ready for anything work or play are all one to him his games are his work he knows no difference he brings to everything the cheerfulness of interest the charm of freedom and he knows the bent of his own mind and the extent of his knowledge is there anything better worth seeing anything more touching or more delightful than a pretty child with merry cheerful glance easy contented manner open smiling countenance playing at the most important things or working at the lightest amusements would you now judge him by comparison set him among other children and leave him to himself you will soon see which has made most progress, which comes nearer to the perfection of childhood. Among all the children in the town, there is none more skilful and none so strong. Among young peasants he is their equal in strength and their superior in skill. In everything within a child's grasp he judges, reasons and shows a forethought beyond the rest. It is a matter of action, running, jumping, or shifting things, raising weights or estimating distance, inventing games, carrying off prizes. You might say, nature obeys his word, so easily does he bend all things to his will. He is made to lead, to rule his fellows. Talent and experience take the place of right and authority in any garb under any name he will still be first everywhere he will rule the rest they will always feel his superiority he will be master without knowing it and they will serve him unawares he has reached the perfection of childhood he has lived the life of a child his progress has not been bought at the price of his happiness he has gained both while he has acquired all the wisdom of a child he has been as free and happy as his health permits. If the reaper, death, should cut him off and rob us of our hopes, we need not bewail alike his life and death. We shall not have the added grief of knowing that we caused him pain. We will say, his childhood at least was happy, and we have robbed him of nothing that nature gave him. The chief drawback to this early education is that it is only appreciated by the wise. To vulgar eyes, the child so carefully educated is nothing but a rough little boy. A tutor thinks rather of the advantage to himself than to his pupil. He makes a point of showing that there has been no time wasted. He provides his pupil with goods which can be easily displayed in the shop window. Accomplishments which can be shown off at will, no matter whether they are useful, provided they are easily seen. Without choice or discrimination, he loads his memory with a pack of rubbish. If the child is to be examined, he is set to display his wares. He spreads them out, satisfies those who behold them, packs up his bundle and goes his way. My pupil is poorer he has no bundle to display he has only himself to show now neither child nor man can be read at a glance where are the observers who can at once discern the characteristics of this child there are such people but they are few and far between among a thousand fathers you will scarce find one too many questions are tedious and revolting to most of us and especially to children after a few minutes their attention flags they cease to listen to your everlasting questions and reply at random this way of testing them is pedantic and useless a chance word will often show their sense and intelligence better than much talking but take care that the answer is neither a matter of chance nor yet learnt by heart a man must needs have a good judgment if he is to estimate the judgment of a child. I heard the late Lord Hyde tell the following story about one of his friends. He had returned from Italy after a three years absence and was anxious to test the progress of his son, a child of nine or ten. One evening he took a walk with the child and his tutor across a level space where the schoolboys were flying their kites as they went the father said to his son where is the kite that casts this shadow without hesitating and without glancing upward the child replied over the high road and indeed said lord hyde the high road was between us and the sun. at these words the father kissed his child and having finished his examination he departed the next day he sent the tutor the papers settling an annuity on him in addition to his salary. What a father, and what a promising child. The question is exactly adapted to the child's age. The answer is perfectly simple. But see what precision it implies in the child's judgment. Thus did the pupil of Aristotle master the famous steed, which no squire had ever been able to tame. End of Book Two